Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are available via iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and a few days ago I managed to wrestle Damien Mander off of his international speaking tour and here into the 3CR studios. Now, Damien's the founder and the CEO of the IAPF, the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, which is based in Southern Africa, which he established to save primarily rhinos and elephants from the illegal trade in horn and ivory. Damien's background is with elite, highly trained teams of the Australian military, but found his true calling and his life's work in the African bush. Damien, thank you very much for coming back on the show. It's been a while since we saw you. It was, I think, May last year. Yeah, beauty. Uh, thanks very much for, for having me back. Good to be back in Melbourne, actually. Uh, home turf, catching up with family and friends and bringing home... Uh, what is nearly a year's worth of dirty laundry to mum to, to, to wash before I uh, pack my bags and head off again on Sunday. There's been a couple of developments since we last spoke. One of these developments are the attacks on two of your head rangers in a Mozambique township. I understand that involved a large group of townsfolk and, and your rangers were really lucky to escape with their lives. Now, can you tell me what are the, the larger implications of these attacks, you know, for, for IAPF, for these Mozambique communities and for the rhino, for everyone involved? It just goes to show you the, the lengths that, that uh, these poaching syndicates are willing to go to to try and uh, disrupt our activities. Uh, we are dealing with, with uh, organised crime. We're dealing with uh, a commodity that is feeding into terror, terror networks. Uh, we know that there are links between the ivory trade and the rhino horn trade uh, as, a, as another source of funding for for these types of industries, and it's, it is just another currency, uh, whether you're talking about child prostitution, uh, human trafficking, drugs, guns, uh, or or the wildlife trade, which is now one of the largest uh, criminal industries in the world, and that's, that's what we're up against. When you start disrupting that, you are taking money from organised crime, and that uh, does not come without its consequences. Uh, we we have people that that give up their lives to to protect nature and protect animals, and uh, the unfortunate part of that is that we have to ask them to do the job of a soldier, and that's what that's what they're doing when they go out there, and they know the risks. Uh, and we we uh, had been patrolling in one of the southern areas of the, the Greater Labombo Conservancy uh, and the townships that border that, and uh, the the team there had arrested two poachers. Uh, and uh, seized a vehicle and weapons, and we're bringing that vehicle uh, back through a township when one of the poachers escaped. Uh, we had three police, armed police with us at that, that time. Uh, they fired off a burst of automatic uh, gunfire to try and get them to stop. 
uh, they didn't stop uh, these people uh, alongside the, you know what had just happened there with those shots arousing everybody had, had uh, um, these people ran in and, and got the the people who are working with these criminal syndicates and next thing there were sixty people that that came out a mob and a mob is a is a is a scary thing uh, it's a living organism and it can do anything at any time and these people came out the the three police who were seconded to us uh, from the government, dropped their weapons and ran. Uh, and our two head rangers were beaten within a, an inch of their life. And had it not been for a, an off-duty police officer uh, who fortunately still had his weapon, came out of out of the township and stood over the top of uh, these two guys while they were being beaten and uh, beaten to death. They were, I mean, Sean has, has an, had an axe wound to the head uh, he stabbed, stabbed in the back of the neck. Filizario, uh, the, the sergeant, stabbed in the chest and abdomen. And um, that that police officer stood there taking a beating himself, but uh, was able to just buy these guys enough time for the the chopper, which which didn't even land. It just the the pilot who has you know, thousands of hours experience used the the tail rotor to sort of clear or disperse the mob, uh, and just touch down for the briefest of seconds and, and get those guys out of there so they could be medivac to hospital but uh, it's it's uh, it's a dangerous game uh, we're playing over there but um, that's the that, that these are the stakes uh, we um, we understand what we're getting into we know the risks and and uh, sometimes Rangers shoot sometimes they're shot it's uh, it's a it's a war it's a guerrilla war that's being fought on the ground uh, against hardened uh, insurgents, and uh, that's this is this is all part of it. But do these attacks change anything for you personally? I mean, like the presence of your family there in Southern Africa. You've committed your life to this cause, but doesn't this make you rethink your commitment and your in your family's commitment? Oh, look, my my commitment is is unwavering, uh, and so is that of of my family. Uh, we've we've packed up uh, a long time ago, eight years ago now, and and, and have been living over there. Nothing is going to disturb uh, or take us away from that environment. I just need to be more sensible in, in terms of how close we were living to to the operations. What, what actually happened is we were living in an area there in South Africa, a place called White River. It's on the South African side of the border and set up our operations just across the border, uh, about 100 kilometres away on the Mozambique side and basically you know, threw down a, a, an iron curtain along that border and made it uh, almost impenetrable for poachers coming through uh, the areas that we controlled. And what happened is they started to migrate those syndicates south and come underneath Kruger National Park and set up uh, on the southwestern edge of uh, you know, one of the most iconic parks in the world. And so in, in this area there now uh, is where a lot of the attacks are being launched into, into Kruger National Park. Um, but those areas where they're staging from was only 15 kilometres now from, from where my family uh, was living. I'm spending an increasing amount of time in the field and, and, and abroad talking about what we do. And it just, uh, yeah, it was time to pack them up and move them uh, back, up to, back up to Zimbabwe. And that's where we are at the moment. What about your rangers? How do you, how do you justify to yourself putting them and possibly their own families also at risk? So, I mean, the the job, as is the job of a soldier, uh, the job of a ranger is, is voluntary. We don't just teach these guys how to do their job. We, we teach them uh, about what, uh, you know, why, why they're out there and the bigger picture. And they don't get paid a huge salary. 
Uh, it's uh, I can tell you in Mozambique, the the job of a ranger sits in the within the agricultural sector, which is the lowest paying sector uh, in the country. It gives you an indication of the type of people that we're working with. These are these are people that give up everything in their life to to be out there uh, to do this job. They could be doing other stuff. They could be getting involved with organised crime, but they said no. We want to take the two hundred bucks a month, and uh, we want to be out here. Uh, on the front lines, you know, a ranger for me is, uh, I think, doing the most important job in the world. You know, a ranger will work their entire life for a shit salary, and they will die with not very many possessions. But I think their their soul is priceless. I've read that um, the IAPF is seeing success in the Mozambique border area, yet also that I've I've read two hundred and eighty rhino have already died this year, and it's only April and that there's a serious decline in the elephant population in the same area, and that's the worst decline since the 1980s. So how do you define a success, if those are the stats? So, uh, Kruger National Park experienced um, 49 elephant deaths last year, so that is a that is a, a significant increase, but in, in comparison to a continent-wide trend where we're seeing 35,000 killed a year, it's not. Uh, it's not really a drop in the ocean. Uh, despite you know, to me, each one of those those lives are significant. Uh, across Kruger with rhino poaching, and Kruger Kruger is the largest rhino population in the world. Up forty percent of the world's rhino uh, live in there. Just in the southern quarter alone, there's more rhino uh, than the collective three hundred and fifty other private game reserves in South Africa that have rhino uh, in there. And, and South Africa accounts for about eighty three percent of. Of, of the world's rhino, so this is this is the epicenter. It's it's the reason why rhino poaching is on a global um, on a global stage. So, 2010 to 2014, there was an on average increase of rhino poaching in Kruger National Park of around 55 percent each year. Uh, June in 2015, we went in there and started working with the Mozambique government and a number of agencies on that side of the border, as well as the South African government. There was a direct correlation there and a tipping point in. Uh, uh, um, rhino poaching uh, incidents within Kruger National Park because we went and cut off the soft underbelly, the area there where most of the poachers were getting into Kruger National Park. So 2015, there was a plateau uh, in, in rhino poaching incidents. Um, 2016, we were able to measure uh, the impact of that operation on the Mozambique side of the border over a 12-month period. And last year, there was a 19.8% reduction in rhino poaching uh, across Kruger National Park. So we are still losing a lot of rhino. Uh, we sleep at night knowing the situation would be much worse if we weren't all doing what we're doing. And look, if, if the conservation industry uh, was doing things right, things would be a lot better. We shouldn't be talking about uh, animals going extinct uh, and you know, the, the, the thousands of animals that are being killed, the land that's being lost across the continent. So for people that have been invested in conservation for a long time and are frustrated, they do... Uh, we do sit at the top of their Rolodex because they like direct action. They like to know if they put a dollar in today, uh, that dollar is going to achieve something uh, you know, that evening. We just got awarded our, our GuideStar, our platinum level um, in the US, which uh, GuideStar is an independent charity evaluator that assesses how effective you are uh, with the money that donors give you on achieving your mission. Uh, so to achieve platinum level, uh, that, that's only achieved by 0.5% of charities that are out there. So that's it's good. It, That's it, really impressive. I know, and I've, I've heard that when you travel to give your talks, you stay in backpackers' hostels and crazy stuff <laughs> like that. Like, you really do it. You, you keep it tight. You keep all the money for the, for the front line. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's where it should be. 
so Damien, in light of the successes you've had in Mozambique along the border, what's what have you got next? Uh, the, the the program we're focusing on now is going to the core of the the issue we have in the conservation industry in the African continent, and that is a lack of of leadership. Uh, leadership that has the ability to command and control a paramilitary operation, and that's what that's what an anti-poaching unit is. And you you can't you can't play that down, really. That's that's just the reality over there on the ground. Uh, when people are coming through with automatic weapons and heavy caliber rifles, it, it needs a certain level of resistance. But uh, there was a report that came out recently um, uh, from one of the, the people from the Nature Conservancy and said one uh, percent of philanthropic funding is being spent on leadership training and capacity building. So that means 1% is determining how effectively the other 99% is being used on the ground, and that is a large part of the reason why things are not much better uh, where we are. And to, to, to understand why that is, you'd probably look at a, a lesson that I took away from Iraq, and I was, I was responsible for the death of a lot of Iraqis. And I was responsible for their death, not because of the way most people are probably thinking uh, with my background. Uh, I was responsible for their death because I was part of a management team that oversaw training and deployment of thousands of Iraqi special police and Iraqi um, national police. And we were paid huge sums of money to recruit, train, equip and deploy uh, these people and put them back out into a war zone uh, in six weeks. Six weeks is not enough time to teach someone the skills they need to be going out there. And so these people, they either deserted, uh, they joined the militia and fought back against us, or they got killed. Uh, and there's no greater way to demonstrate a failed theory than to send someone to their death. And, you know, these are people that will never go home to their wives. They'll never see their mothers again. <coughs> and uh, that's... You know, you could sit and dwell on that, or you could look at how we can use those lessons um, uh, in uh, in in Africa. And you know, the reason the reason those volumes were pumped out in Iraq is because Congress wanted to turn around and say how many people they'd trained. Numbers on on reports. That's all they wanted. And uh, I saw the same thing when I arrived in Africa. I saw huge numbers of rangers being trained over short periods of time so uh, people can put on reports how many people they've trained so donors can turn around and say wow look how many people have been trained all you ended up with is, is an industry that's been overpopulated with people that are not prepared for the the, the realities of the, the job that they're being asked to do on behalf of an international community and so what what we are focusing on now is the anti-poaching um, ranger college and this is a two-year training program uh, for the future leaders uh, of the industry, uh, focusing on a very strong conservation ethic, but also on the leadership skills required to go out and lead uh, large groups of men and women in uh, a paramilitary offensive uh, against a determined enemy. That is is going to be the most important work I'm ever involved with because each one of these people that goes out and takes control, takes management control of an area, and turns it around, that is going to be the survival uh, and the safe haven for millions of animals. So this is our way, of, our way of doing it. Currently the longest training or leadership training program on the continent is six weeks, same as what we did in Iraq. Okay, we're not doing that. I'm not going to be involved with anything about pumping out quantity now. It's only quality. Will you be training potentially 
training rangers from other parts of the world, people that could come over and t- take those skills back to South America or Asia? The next, the next part of the program is basically replicating what we did in Mozambique and scaling it. So in Mozambique, we took eight young people, seven young men and, and one young woman, and we put them under command of the former head of Zimbabwe Special Forces for two years, and we trained them up. Any one of those people now, I can take them out of that operation and send them into any park, and I know that in a short space of time, they'll have the ranger force beat into shape and uh, be out there functioning as a, as a, as a well-oiled machine. And what we're doing now is, is, is doubling that. Uh, there's going to be 16 people going into Malawi from southern Africa. Uh, the byproduct of their training will be the training of hundreds of rangers. That is how they will learn to be instructors and learn to lead uh, uh, these types of operations, is to train people on the job and deal with uh, solving real-world problems. It's not going to be a classroom-based uh, education. Th- that will tip over or roll over into Francophone Africa uh, uh, around uh, 2019, and that will be, again, uh, an expanding course. What we're doing at the moment is still keeping it fairly concentrated. Uh, as Again, we're, we're focused on uh, quality and not quantity. Uh, one day we will expand it overseas and have people from overseas coming in and learning, but what we would rather do is, is go to them and teach them in their own, their own, work pl- in their own environment. Um, I have just finished co-authoring a, um, uh, a, a manual uh, law enforcement in and around protected areas, uh, which is co-authored also by WWF and uh, International Ranger Federation, uh, African Parks. Um, so a number of, of you know, basically all the, the the major players in the in the anti-poaching world, and uh, so that that has that is a, a tool that is available for protected area ma- protected area managers around the world to use. It may, it may not, they may not need it now, but what it will uh, be is something they can utilise if the situation in their park uh, gets out of control and they have to start using a, a more increased level of, of resistance. Do you feel like you're making amends for the, the deaths you feel responsible for in, in Iraq? Uh, I don't do what I do to try and make amends for 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 my past. Um, I just allow it to be a lesson uh, and try not to make the same mistakes again. Uh, I do what I do for the animals and nothing else. One of the other developments I wanted to talk about was the South African government's plan to legalise the trade in rhino horn. I'm just wondering, why, why are they going down this path? Uh, what does it mean for IPF? Um, Nothing, because it's it's not our specialty. If if rhino horn uh, trade gets passed, we'll keep doing what we're doing. If it doesn't get passed, we'll continue to do what we do, and there'll always be a requirement for what we do. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, and and can hypothesise on on whether or not some sort of trade in rhino horn is going to make things better for the rhino or worse. The argument for trade is as good as the argument against trade. And for those that are listening and, and probably rolling your eyes. You know, we're 40 years into a trade ban and uh, you know, the rhino has been getting hunted to extinction and um, you know, rhino horn is, is, a, is a, uh, a resource that does, you know, it can be cut off the rhino uh, like we clip a fingernail and it grows back just like a fingernail and that is, that is one of the strong arguments from the, the, uh, the, the pro-trade uh, lobby groups. You're talking a humane, humane harvest of it. Yeah, yeah, you know, I've been, I went and lived with a traditional healer in Vietnam to try and understand things from their side and they said it's us killing the rhino it's us I said what are you talking about 
And uh, he said, you, you, you guys, you white guys there in South Africa, you could actually create a, a, a system where the horn could be taken off the animal without killing it. But you haven't. Yeah, maybe he's got a point. I don't know. What I, what I do know is um, that the most effective way to protect these animals is out there uh, with with good, robust uh, strategies on the front lines, which involves uh, the silver bullet that people keep looking for, and that is well-trained, well-motivated, well-led rangers that believe their job is the most important job in the world. You can... I mean, you can you can sit here and, and talk about fancy technology or trade in horn or community work or whatever it may be. I can tell you now, the most effective way to protect these animals in their habitat is with these rangers. Is that sustainable for the long term? I mean, that's saving animals today as we speak. But is that is that sustainable for the long term, or is it better to maybe reduce the demand, uh, reduce the prestige, reduce the demand, deflate 100%. the price? Yeah, I, you know, the, the ultimate answer lies in that. And when I said before, you know, I go to work knowing that what I do is not the answer. Our job is to buy the people who are looking for the answer, is to buy them time, and uh, to act as a paramedic for Mother Nature to stop the hemorrhaging and. If we don't do that, then by the time these answers are, which people have been debating over for decades, what the answer is going to be, uh, there's going to be nothing left. Are Africa's governments actually serious about fighting wildlife crime? It's not a huge priority in a lot of countries where social issues are, are such a battle. and it's, it's frustrating for for me sometimes when people always you know turn around and say, well, what are you doing about the communities? And it's like, well... Yeah, look, we're working in some tough countries, you know, some of the hardest countries on the planet to operate. Why is it a conservationist job to deal with social issues? Schooling, health care, uh, education. Why, you know, why, why, you know our, we, we're talking about looking after waterways and trees and animals and using ranges to do that. And then, we, you know, the reason our job gets harder is because the social issues in some of these, these countries deteriorate. And so, the, you know, I mean, to peel to peel it right back, yeah, social issues in in a lot of these places is the reason that I'll never be able to work, unfortunately. But uh, I, don't, I don't know how to fix those uh, on the on the scale that that uh, is brewing. There's going to be two billion people on the continent by 2040. Some countries uh, have their shit together. Look at Botswana. Botswana's military has three mandates: uh, national security, border protection, and wildlife conservation. And you don't want to be a poacher in Botswana. You've said that awareness raising and cultural change to stop the demand isn't going to save an animal today, but an armed ranger will, which is a, it's a somewhat audacious claim because it's pretty much counter to most conservation efforts. How do you regard the campaigns that are being staged in Asia that, that are seeking to create negative perceptions of rhino horn use, you know, in terms of health effects and, and reputation? Do, do those organisations have it? A useful role to play, and hundred percent, hundred percent. Do you, do you collaborate with them? Yeah, yeah. And all, all, all we're doing is buying them time. So, but what I say is true. What they're doing, and the the, the workshops, and that is not going to save an animal right now, today. And so it's like a like a, a paramedic that's dealing with someone lying on the on the side of the on the, on the sidewalk. You know, the doctors are going to be the person that eventually gets them better. But you've got to get them, get them to the operating table, and that's our job. Uh, so we, 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 we need to work, or we do work together as, as a, uh, varying industries that overlap uh, with, with the same mission, the same, uh, the same purpose. And uh, I, I've got huge respect for what they do over there. I just, I, it could take five years, it could take 50 years, 
And, uh, you know, in the meantime, we're going to be out there doing what we do. Are you seeing any change in Asia? Is, is, is there a changing demand for rhino horn with, with these campaigns that are creating negative perception around rhino horn use? Supposedly, but these are, these are tough cultures to crack into and, and to, to fully assess. Um, look, I think it's, it's, it, it, it could be multi-generational uh, to actually achieve... And rhinos what... could be gone by then? No. No, I, I don't think so. I think the work that's happening on the ground now, and we're seeing... Uh, what happened in Kruger National Park led to a, a national downturn in rhino poaching, which was actually uh, an international downturn in rhino poaching. I think uh, these animals can be saved on the African continent by Africans. And um, I don't believe that rhinos will go extinct uh, in the wild. I think wow. serious pressure is going to continue to be put on them, as as is with the elephants. Uh, as I said last show that I was on, these are the two species that we focus on because they're the hardest animals to protect. And when we do develop and implement a, a working strategy that protects these animals, everything else in that ecosystem is, is being looked after. Um, so I'm reading E.O. Wilson's book at the moment, Half Earth. He said, for us to, to sustain human life on this planet, we need to set half aside for nature. And uh, that's without invasive species. That's half of the, the natural ecosystems we have on this planet set aside purely for nature. And so the big issues we're facing at the moment, climate change, deforestation, human population growth, ocean acidification, what we do, in my mind, is the most immediate way uh, to, 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 to have a benefit, and that is to hold on to what we have left. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, and that was The Rolling Stones with Painted Black. That song was a request from our guest, Damien Mander. Damien's the founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, or IAPF, which fights the international crime syndicates trading in rhino horn and elephant tusk from southern Africa. I think hunters are are an endangered species, and uh, you're getting to a place now where Someone doesn't want to risk having their life picked apart on social media uh, just so they can get a, a photo taken with uh, with an elephant uh, or whatever it may be, or the, a giraffe that they've just shot. And if, if these are the angles that need to be pushed to, to try and reduce that suffering for these animals, then, you know, fair play. I, uh, you know, I... I I, I come from a background. I understand the mindset of a hunter because I used to be one. And not only a hunter, I used to be the worst kind of hunter. I was the type that did it for fun and not for food. And uh, that's something I have to live with. Um, you know, I, I not, only, not only fun, but it was some sort of rite of passage to try and be the, the macho, uh, tough guy that I, that I wanted to be, always wanted to be. And you know, this was before I joined the military. Uh, you know, and I had this insatiable desire to go out and, and try and destroy and uh, animals with an easy, vulnerable target that I could find and, and have that outlet, and it's fucking sickening. But that's who I was, and that's where I came from, and I can, I can relate to these people that, that live in that same mindset because that's who I used to be. I remember uh, I just got my gun licence, actually, and I took... Um, took my brother who's five years younger than me took him out uh hunting rabbits and i shot a rabbit uh through the back 
uh, from about 70 metres away, and it didn't die. And this poor rabbit was sitting there on the ground uh, squirming. And I took my brother over and I gave him the rifle. and I was making him shoot it so that he could be a, a man. And uh, he broke down and he, he dropped the rifle and he refused to do it. And I, I thought he was weak. Uh, for a long time I thought he was weak. And then eventually I realised that he was the strong one and I was the weak one. So that's that's... That's where I come from. That's that's my background. That's my mentality, uh, or was my mentality. And uh, being able to use that message today, that if if uh, I was a tough nut to crack, and uh, if I can give a shit about animals, then I think anybody can now. Yeah, the path. Yeah, the path for me is is not one you'd expect uh, many to be able to take to go through that spectrum of change. Uh, but uh, you know, it involved uh, three years in Iraq. Uh, it involved a career as a as a as a Navy diver, a special operations sniper, um, seeing the, the some of the worst side of humanity, seeing a a country uh, ruined, uh, a region destabilized, and hundreds of thousands of people killed. Um, before you start to slowly have the veneer of bullshit broken down over time, and eventually. It's like evolution. You know, you're just slowly dropping away the parts that that are no longer required, and building on the on the the bits that are going to take you forward. And uh, you know, I, I went to went to after after um, Iraq. You know, I ended up in in South America, just doing drugs and alcohol, basically. You know, and if, if recently as a couple of weeks ago, you know, one of the guys from the unit I was in folded up his uniforms and, and laid out his medals and put a sign there for the kids in the morning uh, saying no children past this point and went down and, and, and hung himself. And uh, so I, I put a straw up my nose instead of a gun in my mouth and uh, got lost in drug dens in South America and, uh, and I hit rock bottom, really. Um, but I think sometimes you've got to bottom out before you get shot back out the other side, and that's that's what happened. And then, fortunate enough to get to get to Southern Africa and, and travelling around, uh, getting involved with with conservation eventually, and it's doing good. I've found it's an infectious thing. You know, when you start doing a little bit of it, when you when you've never done much of it before, uh, you want to do more of it. Uh, I'm just yeah, fortunate. I found something that. Uh, was was worth fighting for uh, in in you know the, the next chapter for me. You know, I didn't go to, I didn't join the military to serve my country. I did it because it was an adventure, and I didn't go to um, uh, Iraq to try and do something overly constructive there. I went there to make money. I was still selective in the jobs that I chose, um, and then I didn't go to Africa looking for a, a, a cause. I went looking for a fight, but it was only when I saw what was going on over there. Um, at ground level and having that chip away at me um i realized what i what i was doing as a person and what i was believing were 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 not on track with each other and you know, i wanted to to write what i was um consciously thought was crooked and that was the way i, I was behaving so. do you think maybe the rhinos and the elephants ended up saving you <sighs> There was a, there was a, and I think I spoke about it last time. Um, there was a, there was a, a, 
a buffalo that was caught and she had her back leg um, stuck in a wire snare. The rangers being able to look at the ground could tell that she'd been there for three days struggling. And like this is the, the, this is the most feared animal uh, in the African bush. It's the only animal that hunts a human out of spite. Uh, it's just relentless. And uh, it's you know, hugely feared and hugely respected. And then you've got this poor bloody buffalo now lying around, rolling around in her own shit. And you can, I could hear the bones from uh, her, her snapped pelvis rubbing against each other through layers of flesh and muscle. And, uh, and um, having to euthanize that, that animal. And, uh, but when we did it, she gave birth to a stillborn calf. And that calf, in some sort of crazy spiritual way, was, was my rebirth. You've seen a hell of a lot. Do you ever emotionally overcome by the brutality you, you see or are you always um, the highly functional logical bot that you are for me it's it's fuel in the tank it, it's saying that what we're doing is not enough uh it just i can't we can't afford you know when we lose an animal we can't afford to sit around there and and dwell about it because the next guys are coming through the wire trying to take what what we consider to be our family and these rangers leave their families behind for up to 11 months of the year when you do that, what you leave your family behind for, behind for becomes your family. And these these rangers, they know all the little characteristics and quirks that, that make each one of these animals uh, individuals. And they do. They look after them like they're children. And then, you know, some mornings you wake up and they've been shot and killed. And that's uh, that's a tough pill to swallow. But, you know, we, it just demonstrates that um, we have to be right 100% of the time. They have to be right once. And when we're not right once... Uh, we're, we're uh, very acutely reminded that everything we thought we were doing is, is still not enough, and that's that's motivation. That's uh, you know, that's that's solid motivation for us. And I know, I know that when we when we do put in systems that that look after these two species, that millions of other little animals are being looked after, and the trees and the waterways and all that. So it's, it's, it really is millions millions of animals in each of these ecosystems, from the birds, the lizards, the snakes, the insects, um, all the little tiny mammals, um, the big mammals, um, the fish. Like they're, they're millions of animals benefit from protecting uh, one of these, these, these ecosystems. That's, that's a refreshing thing. I want to know about the rhinoceros. Yeah. Can you tell me about the rhino personality and, and their social unit and the bond between mother and calf? Because I'm, I'm guessing in your work you've got to know individual rhinos. Yeah. Um, we work a lot with black rhino uh, up, where, up where we live in, in Zimbabwe, where I'm based now. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually funny. The, so the, the, there's a very strong bond between the mother and the calf, um, but uh, the the female black rhino calf will stay with its mother for the first two years. The male uh, black rhino calf has to stay with its mother for the first five years until it's socially developed. <laughs> 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 so there, there might be a little bit of a parallel there, um, a, a universal theme. But um, yeah, we have these animals. They come up to our house. They, when we had, I tried to take my son to school. Uh, a few weeks ago, you know, just before I left and came to Australia, and he was late for school because we couldn't get the car out of the driveway because there was two black rhinos sitting there. 
So the teacher thought he, I was full of shit, but um, <laughs> that's the truth. These animals live around their house. They, like, a, uh, like a rhino ate my homework. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of those types of, <laughs> types of things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they've, all my wife's plants from around the house, the pot plants have been eaten off our balcony. Um, I woke up before we uh, did the renovations there and went to... Went to go to the toilet in the middle of the night and walked into a black rhino that was in the kitchen. Uh, so that you know, we do live with these things. They they are very dangerous animals. The black rhino, particularly uh, white rhino, is more docile. But um, it's an animal that's hardly evolved for fifty million years. It's a it's a direct link back to to a prehistoric past. And there used to be a million of them on the continent in nineteen hundred. And uh, we're down to less than 30,000 now. I despair for the planet's future. It doesn't sound like you despair. I used to. Oh, I went through uh, probably uh, 18 months of absolute despair. But um, What changed? Just figured it, it's, you know, got it. You know, there's enough shit going on out there. Uh, you just have to take the the, the glass half, half full approach, I think. Um, yeah, there's some good, good things happening out there. There's some good people, and uh, you know we we can't change the world, but we can change the world for every animal that we choose to make a difference for, and that's powerful knowledge. Tell me about being a vegan in Southern Africa. Uh, Easy? No dramas. Uh, yeah, I I enjoy cooking. Uh, so does the missus. And uh, as you can see, I'm not not too shy of a feed. Uh, I think I'm tipping the scales at about 116 kilos at the moment. But, um, yeah, we just uh, eat a lot of uh, good, wholesome uh, foods that are cooked from, you know, from a raw start. Uh, we don't eat much processed shit. And, uh, yeah, look, sometimes you've got to dig around or if you're out, you've got to piece together uh, parts on a menu. But it, it, it's, it's only hard if, if you allow it to be hard. Is there much of a vegan community over there? I think I'm it. Uh, <laughs> You're the no, sole representative. I, look, we get a lot of uh, we get a lot of ridicule. Like you know, in, in, as as people who are listening to this will will be accustomed to, uh, you know, people having a joke and oh, yeah, all that. But um, it's actually does not feature much uh, in in African culture. Uh, particularly in you know southern Africa, there's just meat-rich diet of you know, people go out and shoot their food, or you know it's red meat, red meat, and more red meat, and um, you know so I get I get all the all the jokes and and all that sort of stuff thrown at me. And, uh, so yeah, I'm a hippie, but I'm a hippie with a gun uh, <laughs> these days. So, but you know, look, I think yeah, I think uh, the conservation community should be playing a much uh, bigger role in um, being the proponent of a, of, of um, a vegan lifestyle. People sign up to become involved with conservation generally because they love animals or they love the environment or a combination of the two. And uh, I think it's it's not it doesn't add up to be selective in in what we look after or who we protect. Uh, if you're going to do it, then it should be all in. Now, the IAPF's approach is obviously tailored to the African context, but, you know, I'm wondering if there's elements that can be applied to the Western context of conservation. You know, the, 
the focus always seems to be on awareness raising, blah bloody blah, blah, which, as you say, won't save an animal today. What, what can Australian wildlife campaigners learn from IAPF's approach? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I get to move, fortunate to move in, in some pretty cool circles over here and hanging out with a lot of people from the local conservation movements and, and the animal rights movement, the vegan crowd. And uh, I, I, always, I always manage to have a laugh when uh, you, know, you can hear the frustration in, um, in, in the voices of some of these people when they talk about the challenges they face on a day-to-day basis, when they're seeing some, an injustice. And I tell them, in Africa, when we see someone about to hurt an animal, legally we're allowed to shoot them. <laughs> which we, which, if only, if only. Yeah. <laughs> So I could just I can I know you guys have been heavily involved with the the, the duck hunting uh, that's been happening here in Victoria. And I can I can imagine what some of the people there are thinking right now that if uh, they could go out there with their own <laughs> rifles and uh, and protect sight, the, yeah. and protect those ducks. Uh, look, it's um, you know, one thing I've learnt uh, in the organisation that, that that we run, which is now you know registered in five countries. Uh, supporting ranges that, that help protect uh, 6 million acres of, of wilderness. Um, you know, eight years down the track, you know, I started off trying to do so many different things and I was doing them doing them in a mediocre way. And all we do now is just do a couple of things and, and be really good at them. And that, I suppose, you know, for, for people involved at grassroots side of conservation and, and you do get frustrated... Uh, or anim- grassroots side of animal welfare, you do get frustrated because there is so much noise out there, so much stuff going on, and so many places you want to be trying to help these animals. And and I think to have maximum impact, just choose a choose a couple of of really strong angles and and hit those with everything you've got. Thank you for coming on the show today, Damien. It's been fantastic to speak to you as always. <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Katie. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Um, yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate your time and and the listeners. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I know. I know. I'm speaking to a, a a very special group out there. If you want to learn more about Damien's work, you can go to www.iapf.org, and there's also a Facebook page. Now, there's a few community announcements before we finish up. Sea Shepherd Sydney is hosting a screening of Shark Water at New South Wales Parliament House. That's on Tuesday evening, April the fourth, and you have to book tickets for that. Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign is holding beach cleanups at Brighton Jetty in Adelaide and at St Kilda in Melbourne. Both of those are on Saturday, April the 8th. Then there's another one at Redcliffe in Brisbane on Sunday, April the 9th. Melbourne Sheep Save is holding its very first rally in the Burke Street Mall at noon on Saturday, April 8th, and all are welcome. There's going to be a National Day of Action against the greyhound industry on Sunday, April the 9th. Rallies will be taking place in Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth and Hobart. Big Sky Sanctuary is having a fundraising yard sale in Faulkner. That's the northern suburbs of Melbourne. That's also on Sunday, April the 9th. Details for all those events are on their respective Facebook pages and will eventually make it onto our own Freedom of Species Facebook page. Now, week three of Victoria's recreational duck killing season starts today and will be running for another 10 weeks or so. You might have heard the news of the recent closure of four wetlands near Kerrang. The slaughter that occurred there is just the tip of the iceberg, and it continues right across the state. 
that slaughter just was one that the Coalition Against Duck Shooting happened to be present for and so reported on. So, But bear in mind there's hundreds and hundreds of wetlands and that about 50% of duck shooting occurs on private land. So don't think for one moment that the closure of those wetlands has addressed the issue. It has just scratched the very surface. So please continue to hassle your local MP and let them know that recreational duck shooting has no place whatsoever in civilised society. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. And big thank you to Damien Manda and to the Rolling Stones. I'm going to leave you with some tunes from Feeling Groovies. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.